Hi everyone, this is International Society of Hypertension Podcast. I'm Associate Professor Francine Marques from Monash University, Australia, and my co-host is Dr. Augusto Montesano from the University of Glasgow, Scotland. So welcome back, everyone. In today's podcast, we'll be chatting with an emerging leader in cardiovascular science that has moved countries and had to adapt to a new grant research system twice. I'm pleased to introduce to you Professor Ana Paula Dantas, who is a research scientist at the Division of Atherosclerosis and Coronary Disease at the Institute of Biomedical Investigations, Auguste P. Sanier, and the Clinical Cardiovascular Institute in Barcelona. Ana is also an adjunct professor at the University of Barcelona in Spain. Prior to that, Ana was an assistant professor in the Department of Medicine and the director of the Vascular Biology Corps in the Center for the Study on Sex Differences in Health, Aging, and Disease at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. Anna is very active in journals editorial boards. She acts as national and international reviewer for a few funding agencies, but most of all, Anna has been an ECR advocate in Spain and has mentored many students. With that, Anna, it's with extreme pleasure that I say uh, hi to you and welcome you to our podcast. And thank you very much for being here with us. Thank you. Thank you, Guto, for the invitation. Uh, it's a pleasure to, to talk to young people, uh, although we are still very young, but younger than us, and uh, try to help and advise her on some points in research. Thank you for sure. the invitation. And just to get started, can you tell us a little bit of your story and how did you get involved with hypertension or cardiovascular disease research? Um, well, I started, uh, you, you, you mentioned that I have to apply for grants in two countries. Actually, it's three countries. I started in Brazil oh, yeah. as a PhD student. And, uh, and then we have to apply for fellowships and it's a completely different system. And I had a very great mentor there who exposed me to grant application because I was helping her to, to apply for grants for the lab. So I learned a lot in the Brazilian system already. It was uh, quite an experience with Maria Elena. Uh, very grateful for, uh, to her. And um, so I started in the cardiovascular field. Uh, it was not, I, I have to say, it was not my first choice, I have to confess, but I believe it was the best choice. At the, uh, uh, when I was in Brazil, I went to study uh, phytotherapy. Uh, I went to go to Amazon and be a scientist of plants and uh, pharmacology in, uh, in the cardiovascular field. In, in the University of Sao Paulo, uh, one of the best groups and uh, with great mentors. And um, a friend of my father, who was a professor at the university, he said, better you choose a group where you can learn science and then you choose the field, then do the opposite. You choose the field and then you go to a group that where you're not gonna learn anything. So I recommend you go and he mentioned this group and uh, another group in, in, in the university and I, I ended up going there to the cardiovascular 
uh, group and uh, I just love it. And now it's my area. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and um, Anna, so uh, this podcast is from the International Society of Hypertension and we like to ask like uh, how participation in societies have uh, helped you to navigate through your career. And I know like you participate in different societies in Brazil, States and uh, now in Spain. So how the aspect of uh, your career has helped you? Uh, although I, I, I hear that a lot from some students and at the, at the time from some peers that, are you crazy or gonna go to, to get into societies and it's very time consuming? Uh, it is, but it's, I think it's essential. Um, as uh, I, I have to mention that I had the, I, I would say three great mentors in my career. And one of these other mentors that was Catherine Sandberg in Georgetown, she used to say, you have to put yourself out there. And Maria Elena was also like this, you have to put yourself out there. And one way to put yourself out there is to be involved. So you have to get involved first because people know you. No, if you go to the societies, people know you. And also you learn how the system works. What's uh, uh, is requested in research, how to apply for the grants. Uh, you see what these committees are asking for. You know, you learn that. You are inside of the decision-making. I think it's essential for your career to get involved in societies. And Anna, you um, so when you move to Brazil to um, to the states, like it, it is a big difference in culture and uh, and the granting system. So like, how easy or how hard was uh, for you to adapt to that? And what kind of advice do you give to people that are moving different to different countries or different environments? Um, it's hard. I'm not say, lie and say, oh no, it's a piece of cake. No, it's it's hard. Uh, when I got when I uh, I went to the U.S. Um, first as a, in an, in an internship for my PhD, so I didn't got into the grant application until I went to Georgetown. And I have to say, it, um, I applied when I got there for twelve grants. And I got zero, okay? So, because I didn't know the language, I didn't know how to write, uh, uh, I didn't know how to convince the referees on the grant committee. Uh, and I learned, I learned how to write, I, I learned how, to, uh, again, that's why it's important when you get to the committee and when you know people who knows uh, the path for this grant application. A good mentor is going to explain. No, no, you have to, you have to show better the the method. Some uh, societies they they prefer a great hypothesis. And they don't care exactly how you're going to get to the results. Um, as as soon as it's a very unique hypothesis, and some other societies they really appreciate a good hypothesis, but they want to see if it's really feasible. So you have to be in detail with methodology. You have to learn the different language, not English or Spanish or Portuguese. 
language on grant application, each society asks for one thing, okay? One different way to, to say the same, to sell the same project. And um, in the US was like this, uh, when I came to Spain and then I came with the, the shape of grant application from NIH, for example, and here they thought, okay, this is boring. That's too much. Here we got, uh, we need to be more objective. So I have to change the language again and learn, relearn how to apply for grants. And I have, I fail in the beginning and then until finally you succeed and you get into the system and then uh, everything become easier and easier. Uh, it's hard, it's hard, but it's a great experience. I tell all my students, you have to go to another country, at least to learn that people are different, that uh, the pipettes are in a different drawer. You know, it's, uh, if you stay here, if you don't move, we, we, we close our minds. We, we don't think outside of the box anymore. And I think it's important. It's crucial, actually. And and Anna, just like a, a, an, an additional question related to this movement or like changes that you had in your career. Uh, so you, you went from the States to Spain and, and mm -hmm. States, like let's say if you have stayed there, uh, you would have like a great career because things were happening to you. So again, you had to, uh, <clears throat> you had to make that choice and uh, make that change. And then you said that when you went to Spain, you had to relearn everything. So with that, I guess like a little bit of frustration and like uh, maybe like an imposter syndrome or like, you know, negative thoughts may have like arise and be like, hey, did you do the right choice or like, uh, or decide make you question yourself. And so for people that are going through the same thing, because you were able to overcome that and be extremely successful in Spain. So for the people that, are going through the same situation, what made you be successful? What helped you to go through this initial hard phase? Yeah, I'm not gonna lie to you that uh, the decision was uh, was complicated and, that, and restart again. Uh, sometimes you get disappointed and they say we have some regrets. But one thing that came to my mind and helped me to go through, and I think it's the most important point, was when I said, um, why am I a researcher? When I'm, why am I in this career? It's because I like to learn. It's because I like uh, to find out new things. So let's consider this moving as a, a new challenging and uh, a new thing to learn. And uh, we cannot be disappointed because we fail in research. So we, we shouldn't be disappointed because we move to another country and we move to another lab, you know? Things are gonna be hard in the beginning, but then uh, they're gonna be easier or not. And then you move again because that's not your place, you know? You have to be positive. And, uh, and I think that helped me a lot to, to think, uh, Wait, I'm, I'm a researcher because I like challenging. So I, I shouldn't give up. You know, I shouldn't be with regrets and disappointed. And... and I think you said something really interesting because 
as a researcher, we are always adapting our projects and our hypotheses. Exactly, exactly. And that means like we are adaptable, adaptable people. I don't know if they yeah. even like is a word, but yeah. it's it's true. Like uh, yeah, it's a very good advice, I know. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll myself too. <laughs> 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 so now, uh, now, like changing a little bit, like from your career to uh, your mentoring experience. So if you need to define uh, mentorship, and that's like a question that I like to ask because we get so many different words. So if you need to define your mentorship experience in one word, which word would be? That would be as a mentor or a mentee? As a mentee. Then it would be gratitude. And I as a mentor? Um, as a mentor, I don't know. Um, I would say that's necessary, mm. uh, something like that. Good. And do you think mentorship is important? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a must. It's a must. I think uh, it starts alone, a new career, a new lab. Uh, it's crazy. It's um, in, uh, barely impossible, you know? Um, as I said, it's a, a different language, it's a different system, political system, even in the same country, two different institutions, they have different approach uh, uh, committees and the decision mentality on the decision making. And you need someone to help you to go through this. The science is yours. The science, nobody's gonna take from you. Your ideas, your scientific ideas, if they are yours, but you need someone to help you to go through all this bureaucratical and political part of science that they do exist and they, they are important. They are very important in the career. And then when in your career did you realize that you needed a mentor? When I started becoming independent in Georgetown. And uh, I had uh, Catherine who was my mentor there uh, I didn't even know there was a, such a thing like a, as a mentor because I was in a PhD, so I have my supervisor, and that's a, it's normal. And when I was a postdoc, uh, I have Thomas who was already a great supervisor, but then it's a different view because you work on the project of your supervisor, and uh, you are learning uh, how to do science, and then you're independent and uh, the science, you know how to do already, but then this person come and it was pretty much like that. Catherine came and she started telling me, no, you have to do this. You have to apply like that. You have to get involved with this. So uh, why don't you sign up for the committee, this and that. And when I realized she was mentoring me, you know, and, uh, and, and then I saw that was really necessary because I didn't know any of the things, you know, you, you don't learn that when you are a postdoc or you're a PhD, normally. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and Anna, <clears throat> so now changing to you as a mentor. So like thinking you as a, as a mentor, how would you, would you uh, describe your mentoring style? I would say I'm more like a big sister. I, I, I don't call myself as a mom because mom, they, they forgive things and I don't. 
you know, I'm, I'm that big sister that is there to listen, to help, to show how to do the experiment, how to get it to things done. But if things are done in a wrong way, and then I go and say, okay, dude, you're doing, that's not the way to go. You know, I, I would say it's more like a big sister. Yeah, no, I, I remember that because for people to know, like me and Anna, we go like a while ago, like since Brazil. And uh, I started when that you were doing your, your PhD there. And Anna was yeah. uh, a big sister to a lot of people in the <laughs> there. Like you have helped and inspired like many people there. And so uh, go to uh, So uh, I'm happy to see that you didn't change because because no, if you need one. to learn something, Anna is the person for you to go. <laughs> Yeah, and, now people are going to start calling me. <laughs> <laughs> they should, they should. Um, so, Anna, so when you look at your uh, mentees or like, a, let's say, uh, a mentee, what kind of traits or uh, what kind of like attitude do you think a mentee should have in order to succeed? Uh, I think first a mentee needs to be humble uh, and listen. Uh, because a mentor is not a mentor for no reason, you know. Uh, you're there to try to help that person. And if you go think, and this is a mistake a lot of people do when uh, we start an independent career and we say, okay, now I'm independent. I'm, uh, I'm on my own. I know how to decide things. And sometimes you are in the wrong path and someone with more experience is see, watching this. And you have to be humble enough to le le uh, to listen, and um, and I think this is the main main trait that uh, a mentee should have. Mm -hmm. And and I think like this next question is very important for uh, now uh, the time that we are. So you did your PhD in Brazil, and then you did uh, part of your PhD or postdoc, if I understood well, like in the in the states. And for that, like you have to choose a good training environment that is going to help you um, in your future. So how do you think that, uh, what would you tell people and, or which advice would you give to people on how to choose a good environment and also like how to identify a good environment for you? Um, I think one of the biggest mistakes the students do is to go for a lab because they publish a lot. Uh, while you're a student, while you're starting your career, it's very important, of course, to go to a productive, very productive lab, it's, it's nice, but also uh, a lab where you see that people learn, where you have good mentors. And I think the best way to find out is to ask around. The same way the PIs ask for a reference letter to another PI about us, we should ask, and it's not a shame, should ask uh, the students, when you go to visit the lab, you walk around and say, so how is the environment here? If you see that people are happy and uh, you know cheerful, it's a good environment. And for sure there is a good mentor there controlling this good environment. Uh, it can be either the PI or it can be a, a big brother or a big sister you know, that is a more senior, but you have a good mentor. 
Actually, I had a good mentor uh, when I started my PhD who was a PhD student, who was helping me, was the first person who helped me to write a, the project for my, my fellowship. And um, so I think, I think it's important, you look for a place where you can learn more than publish. Uh, I know we are living in an in a era that of numbers, right? You have to have uh, age index of such and such, uh, so many papers published, uh, uh, impact factors. But before that, think that you're starting. And if you learn wrong, you're gonna be doing things wrong. And you take that for the rest of your career. Mm -hmm. And and Anna, like throughout your career too, you had to collaborate and uh, create relationships with uh, researchers. Um, so what would be your tip for people that need to talk to other people? Like how, because you're very easy to approach people and get along with people. Um, and I think like most of that comes from your personality, like you're an easy person to talk to. But for those that are not, like they're shy or something. So what's your tip for people to approach someone and moreover to approach someone that they find intimidating? Um, I would say um, meditation. Take a deep breath. No, it really works. Um, I mean, I'm shy too. I, I, I feel intimidated by people. I, especially when I was a more junior scientist and uh, you go to a conference and you see these big names that read all the papers and then you're talking to that person, you feel intimidated by, by this person. And, uh, and it's, it's sometimes the person's really nice. And, and actually most of the time they're really nice. Um, but then you have to, and, and this was an advice from once from Dr. Zuleika in Brazil. And she was uh, one of my first presentations that I was, I was shaking, I was really nervous. And the laser point was all over the room because I was, my, my hand couldn't stop. I stopped pointing the PowerPoint because I, I couldn't present. And, um, and then she said, before that, you take a deep breath and like uh, techniques uh, that comes from theater, you know, uh, singing mantras, taking, uh, meditate and relax yourself and go and talk to the person. And everything's going to be fine, you know? I think yeah. it's, it's the best way. Uh, I'm, I'm shocked, Anna, because you never gave me, throughout the years that we know each other, the impression that you were shy or, like, nervous. So, like, it's, it's good to hear that. Because um, Everybody is. Everybody yeah. has something. I mean, and then when you learn, that, that's the point. When... I mean, it's because you, you, you met me, I was more senior, but in the mm. beginning, oh my gosh, it was really difficult to talk to people and presenting, you mm. know, in front of people. And then you learn there are techniques. Uh, actually, there are workshops for that. And uh, yeah. I did one uh, and that helps. It, it, this is not, uh, I'm not going to say a bad word, but it's not a BS. It's not something that mm -hmm. <laughs> stupid thing, you know? Um, it's, it's really important and it really helps. Uh, there are people who uh, it's more easier. It's easier to present. It's easier to be more, let's say, shameless. And others, uh, they are more shy, but uh, we can. And then when you see that you can go through this, 
you get more comfortable with yourself and then everything is so easy, you know? Yeah. And that's one of the things that I say, um, our students or people here, like it's, you know what, if you talk to someone and someone is rude to you or it's not like approachable, then it's like, great. It's, you already know from the beginning that that's the person that's not going to be part of your life and shouldn't be part of your life because exactly. they're not going to help you. Exactly. Exactly. They already know from the beginning. So perfect. So like exactly. check, like one, one last problem uh, to you. I, I remember um, uh, Thomas, Thomas Michel uh, in Boston, where I did my postdoc, he, he used to tell us before any presentation we are doing in a conference, say, okay, if someone comes and is very aggressive, don't think it's personal against you. Probably it's personal against me. So don't be uh, offended. And also uh, think that the whole room is going to be judging more that person because it's been rude than you because you, you were not able to answer the question because the person was rude. So, and, and it's like that. And this person's, this person's not worth it. In general, we get intimidated for nothing because uh, for us, uh, a Nobel Prize is a celebrity. And, uh, you know, I remember when I met Fushigot, I, I, I feel like I was meeting Tom Cruise, you know? <laughs> And uh, I really want to talk to, to him and he was a Nobel Prize and, and he was so nice. So, and, and everything went so smooth, you know, talking, we were went to talk. He was talking to all the students uh, and uh, yeah, people are nice. We, we shouldn't be intimidated. As you mentioned, if there's someone who is not, it's not worth it. Yeah. So, and now moving a little bit like to diversity and inclusion, which is the, the la last phase of our, uh, our chat here. Um, so I read on your bio sketch that I mentioned to you that you were part of like a very interesting, um, um, I would say like activity in Spain that's called the Ataclis, which I think in English you said like it's, uh, it's Hercules, right? Um, yeah. And it's, it was targeted to, there's a part that was targeted to ECRs where you're able to advocate for uh, ECRs. Can you tell us a little bit more about that 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 uh, uh, opportunity and that activity and your experience with it? Okay, uh, Eracles was a network inside of um, uh, in Spain uh, to sum up um, efforts and uh, research to join people in research in Spain in cardiovascular field. There was a network who lasts, uh, I think, 15 years or, or more. And Heracles was the part who was taking care of the hypertension and the vascular disease. And uh, when I start, when I joined the group, uh, as part of my team here at the, at the hospital in Barcelona, I was a young investigator. I was just starting my career here. And the, the head of the, the, the network, he was actually, he was very supportive of uh, young investigators. And um, so we came with this idea to create a parallel group, what was uh, Heraclide, which are the sons and the daughters of Hercules. So, and we are meeting uh, annually, just young investigators to exchange experience, to meet each other, as I, I was starting every year the session saying, 
it's good that we meet each other because we are the future of science in Spain. And one day we're all gonna be PIs. And, um, and so it's good that we start meeting now that uh, it's more informal than later when you're all that, like big shots. And uh, so we were exchanging uh, doubts. It was very relaxing, very refreshing because it was taking all this head away of having these intimidating PIs in the room. We are all young scientists. So we were presenting our data. We are discussing uh, the failures of our data. That was, I think, the more important part and uh, getting that device from other young investigators was very, very refreshing and I think very necessary. That's, that's good. And, um, and it's something that I think like uh, we should have more. Uh, I know that like here uh, in Glasgow, they have like a little community called like Nerds. Um, and it's, it's sort of like that way, like people like it's across institutes and for people to young investigators to get together and help each other and help each other through the path. And it helps because it shows you that you're not alone. Exactly, uh, exactly. Yeah. And if you go through a problem, you're not the only person going through that problem. And if exactly. you win, you're not the only person who's winning. You have like all the, that supporting net. That exactly. Forward. Exactly, especially, especially because when uh, these young investigators, they were presenting in the official meeting of Heracles, you go there and you present uh, all the good results you have. And then for someone who is having nothing, it looks like, oh my gosh, I'm a failure. Mm-hmm. And you're not, and you're not. Because to get one good result, you fail in 10, yeah. you know? Yeah. It's, it's like that, science is like that. It's frustrating, but it's awesome. Yeah, and Anna, like uh, diversity and inclusion is something that it's, uh, highly uh, discussed now, I think, around the world. Uh, and you see, like, you know, protests everywhere, uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, like, you know, uh, uh, LGBT plus, like, rights and kind of things. And I think, like, it touches a little bit of science as well, because there are a lot of minorities that are not included or well represented, even though they exist. Uh, like, man panels, you know, uh, like in um, important committees that is just like, you know, white uh, committees. So how, what do you think is, uh, in your opinion, the biggest barrier for diversity and inclusion? And how do you think we could, what we could do to change that and improve the situation? Um, I think the biggest barrier is prejudice. Uh, we still, uh, and the prejudice creates uh, lawmakers who creates barriers for visa, for um, their institutions, for example, that uh, we cannot have a maternity leave during tenure track because it counts, the, the, the timing for tenure track is the same for men and women. And if I have two kids during my tenure track, I've been out for at least two years and I'm evaluated the same way as men. Of course, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna pass because I'm gonna be less productive. So there is a lot of pressure and there are a lot of prejudice against immigrants, uh, against uh, people of color, uh, LGBT, uh, 
and uh, to change that, it's, I think, and I don't want to be pessimist, but it's hard because we need to change mentality of who makes the laws and because we have to make easier for women to go to work. We have to make easier for minorities, people in color, immigrants to get a visa, for example, or to be included and not be judged because of sexual orientation. Uh, and for that, I think we have to start uh, on the top. We have to vote for uh, politicians who are more open-minded for that. And then they're gonna change uh, laws and then they're gonna, the university can, because I think the, the, the university or the, the, the institutes, they, they are supported by laws in the country in each country, in either in Brazil or US or uh, here in Spain or other countries in Europe, I think we're very close-minded for the, against the, for diversity. We have, uh, we say that we have inclusion, but it's not true, it's not true. Yeah, so in one of the interviews that uh, I had the, the opportunity to do for the podcast, we're talking about access. And I think is that's exactly what you're saying. Uh, we're talking about like um, uh, people that don't have, especially like I was in about the, the system in the states that people don't have. Uh, it applies everywhere uh, that don't have money to pay for their education, and then it's like what, what, like so. The thing is, ask ourselves what we're we doing to give access to those people because there are talents there. They're just uh, not discovered so maybe like open the lab doors to uh to people like that like to give them the chance to ex to be exposed to this opportunity and then invest on those people in a, in a way that we currently don't do. but then but then i think you i'm just being the the advocate of devil here the problem that you open the lab for for people who you believe that they have potential, but if they are not, at least here, if they are not supposed to be in the lab, like they are, they don't have the the title, the PhD title, they don't have the credentials, they don't have the visa. Uh, you, you you're committing a crime, okay? You are illegal. So it's really hard. I really want to, there. There are some students that they came to my lab. I really want to keep them. And I couldn't because there was a problem with visa. Mm. And there, that's what I'm saying, that the change needs to be uh, at higher level or deeper yeah. level, depends on from where. It has to come from the Congress, you know? Yeah. And then yeah. allow us to open our doors because uh, it's hard. It's really hard. Yeah. So like here in the, uh, in the UK, so I participated in something called like the Nuffield uh, Project which is like for high school students. So uh, they send you like a um, high school student for to shadow you like for a few months and they need to write a report on what they're doing. And it was very exciting because I got like this young boy um, and I remember the beginning, he's like, oh, I don't know exactly what I wanted to do. I think I wanted to become a doctor or, uh, or something. And then at the end, 
was so so good to see like he's like no no i wanted to become a doctor i'm going to med school i'm going to if it's not i'm going to do right. something in biology because i really enjoy what like what you guys are doing here in science so like it's it's good to see that there are opportunities there are things that you can do to inspire people and as you said it, it came from the government it, it is a um exactly. program uh, exactly. directed to these students to make sure exactly. that they they get some experience exactly we need we need programs like that we need more programs like that uh if the institution can create and uh, and it's not illegal perfect you know yeah. i think uh, i think they should support this but unfortunately we don't have still don't have this support so Anna, you touch base on uh, maternity leave and the difference like how men and women are judged the same but conditions may be different because of like uh your lives and because of the role of women in today's society that change uh so and you know that in terms of women there is the the, um, the leaking pipeline um theory that like as we move through the career more and more women leave the career uh, because of many choices and in some cultures uh it's even harder for women because of their perceived role in that specific society or culture so what advice would give to women for them to uh, stay in not hypertension research research in, in and not research. give up uh I think first we we should create a more a sisterhood. Okay, I'm not calling like a, let's be feminists here, but kind of uh, because we need support from each other. I think um, we uh, it's it's hard it's hard not to give up uh, when you don't have support and uh, the three great mentors I had in my career, they were three women. I have, uh, now I have uh, the boss of the head of the department, it's a great guy, but uh, um, uh, I, I've been already too independent. That's why he's not my mentor. Thomas Michel was a great mentor in science, but I think a, men a mentor for life, for uh, the Three women, they pushed me not to give up. You know, they were like, Anna, please, uh, uh, you can do it. Uh, and there were moments that uh, it's hard. I, I have two kids, okay? And uh, grant application here in Spain, for example, is once a year. I have to, to take the computer to the, uh, to, 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 the, to the labor room, basically, you know? because I have to finish to apply for a grant. And that's really unfair. It, because if I don't do that, I have to wait for one year to apply for the grant. So the system is made uh, to favor men. It's not ma made to help us, you know? Um, and uh, I had the help from these women they were like, no, you can do it. Uh, don't worry, I finished for you. Uh, this kind of support, okay? I think girls, they shouldn't give up science. If they are really passionate for it, it's worth keep going. 
Uh, I remember, and for me, that was very inspiring. I remember I was uh, in a talk when I was in Boston. Uh, there was a session that is, was in honor of Ebanir, who was a great scientist in G-Protein in Harvard. And they have this special session uh, once a year and her son came and uh, he made a speech and he was like, yeah, it's great to see that you guys celebrate my mom. It's, it's good to be back here. It was my first playground. Uh, and my, my toys, they were like um, centrifuge tubes, you know, because my mom was in the lab and I was playing with the centrifuge tubes and she was putting like uh, coloring water. And, uh, and that for me was like, okay, I want my kids to play with my, my centrifuge tubes. And they do actually, you know, uh, I have some, some students, they say, oh my gosh, I'm really impressed because you leave the lab and then in five minutes, you're back with her kid and you put the kid to do the homework in the lab and go and finish, uh, explain how to do the experiment. And, uh, and my kids are fascinated with the lab. They really enjoy going there, you know, and see how mom works and, uh, and see the cells in the microscope. It's, um, uh, so it's, it's an investment for the future. So you got like two yeah, little signs. I'm, I'm, I'm a hope. One looks like it's gonna go to the science path. <laughs> yeah, you succeeded, Anna. Yeah, yeah. I, I have my first, my, my one of my mentees here at home. <laughs> so Anna, now like uh, I promised, like last question and focusing on COVID nineteen. So as you are aware, like COVID-19 hit us for more than a year, more than what we wanted, um, and is still ongoing and has had devastating impacts in the careers of many ECRs. So do you have any idea, advice, or anything you'd like to say to uh, our listeners uh, that are ECRs and how to go through this period or uh, what can we do to um, I know it's hard because I think there are two problems for um, during COVID pandemic. There were, two, no, there are still because they're still going on. Um, during the quarantine, especially because one was uh, many students, many students, many young investigators who were starting independent career and have first grant, the, the grant, they have a period that should be done, right? And they couldn't do anything. And they were paying salaries, they were buying animals, they were, um, uh, they, and they didn't have any result. And I think this uh, inst institutions and the governments, they should uh, somehow forgive a little bit the, this, this period of inactivation uh, give an extension or even uh, put, uh, add some more money to these projects that are worth to continue uh, to help these, these young investigators to not um, lose the project. And the other problem that I, I went through this uh, is when you start a career, uh, you're on your own, you are your own technician, you are the PI, the technician, the postdoc, 
you have to do the experiment and write the paper and write the grants until you start having funding to get people to work with you and help you. And here in Spain, I saw many, many investigators who had to literally shut down the lab because it was the only person working and everything was stopped for months, for almost one year. And, um, and I think the mentors, if you, and this helped, this happened to me, for example, uh, Dr. Sabate here, he allowed some people who work for him to help me in the projects while we were in, in, in quarantine. So we were rotating in the lab. So I was helping other projects as well. And, you know, because we couldn't be all of us in the lab at the time. And that was very helpful. And I think as the senior scientists, they should really consider these to help the young investigators. Which is amazing because like, is really exercising the concept of community. Exactly, like, exactly, yeah. exactly. That's amazing. Uh, so, Anna, thank you so much for, again, for thank being with you. us. It was amazing. Like, uh, I think you inspire me and you inspire many more people. I think people are going to love listening to you. And yeah, so thank you so much for uh, giving us your thank time. You, you. It was really nice talking to you and see you again, Guto. <laughs> and kids, don't give up. Science is awesome. Thank you for listening to our interview. If you'd like more tips on mentoring, subscribe to our podcast for more interviews with senior and emerging leaders. Stay safe, open-minded and kind.